Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to come and study once more. May you please lead and guide us with your spirit as we study the Bible, that the Holy Spirit who inspired those words would be the very one that would come and teach us and to guide us and to lead us into all truth. So Lord, please be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the parable that we are studying this evening is entitled, The Two Sons. And before we can study this parable, we need to have a look at the background to the parable once again. What's the reason why Jesus gave this parable? We're going to start here in Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. Now, when he was come into the temple, speaking of Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? Who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye will tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say to us, Why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, We fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. The priests and the elders, they came to Jesus and asked him, who gave him authority to do what he was doing, to preach what he was preaching, to, to perform the miracles that he was performing? Whether that was, you know, from healing to teaching to preaching, it didn't matter. They were asking, where did you get your authority from? Who gave him the license to do all of this? And the people that, that, uh, that asked, they were people from the church. They were, not ask, they were asking from a church perspective, not a government perspective. They weren't asking, hey, did Caesar give you this authority? No, they were asking from a religious standpoint. You see, he had not been given the stamp of approval from them as a religious leaders. But Jesus, instead of answering that question, he ans- asks them back a question. It was in regards to the baptism of John. This is John the Baptist, not, not John the disciple that was following Jesus at this time. So Jesus asks, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it of men? And the priests and elders, they, they begin to reason it out and they find that they can't give an answer because it will show their foolishness either way. If they say that John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus would ask them, why didn't they believe in him as Christ? Because John baptized Jesus and John also pointed out Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And and he was the Messiah. So if they believed that and agreed that John's baptism was from heaven, it was heaven ordained, then they would have to accept Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. However, if they say that John's baptism was of men, it wasn't ordained by God, it was from a worldly origin, then they would be in serious trouble as well because, you see, everyone regarded John the Baptist as a prophet. The crowd would turn upon them. Even many of the religious leaders and even the political leaders knew that a power of heavenly origin accompanied John's ministry. They realized that they were caught no matter what. No matter how they'd answer, it would be a wrong answer. So rather than, you know, even come to the point that admit that Jesus was Messiah, they said, I'm not going to tell you. We we refuse to answer. They couldn't tell. Not because they really didn't know, 
but they didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. And so with that, Jesus launches into his parable. Let's read in Matthew 21, 28 to 31. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, The first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. So this parable is about two sons. The first one said that he wasn't going to go help his father in the vineyard, but he ended up going. And the second son, he was said he, that he was going to help from the beginning, but he didn't end up going at all. Now, before we define who the two sons are first, let's have a look at the vineyard. We've seen the vineyard a few times before, but let's refresh ourselves again with this understanding. What does the vineyard represent? Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So the vineyard there represents who? It represents the house of Israel. And in that modern application today, it represents God's people in the church. Now, how about the sons? Who do they represent? The first son said, no, but afterward he repented and he went. And Jesus said this about them. Do you remember this? In Matthew 21, 31, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Who? The publicans and the harlots. The, the first son represents those that are not Christian, those that are not um, following Jesus. They are the publicans and the harlots, how, the, the people that, that the Pharisees regarded as wicked and sinners. And so they didn't know anything about God. And in fact, many of them didn't want anything to do with God. But yet, Jesus said that these people would go into the kingdom of heaven before them. And, you know, we looked at the publicans and the harlots in the last study as well. So we're not going to go to various texts. We saw Mary Magdalene. We saw um, Zacchaeus. These people were famous publicans and harlots in a sense. But how about the second son? Who does the second son represent? Well, the second son said he would go, but he didn't end up going. And Jesus said in verse 31 that these were the priests and the scribes. He was addressing them in contrast to the publicans and the harlots who would enter into the kingdom of heaven before they do. These people represent those in the church. You see, friends, there's a very clear application here. Just because we're in the church, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are saved. And just because people are not in the church, it doesn't mean that they aren't saved or that they won't be saved. You see, there were two key things that Jesus pointed out to what qualified the non-Christians to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember what it was? There were two things that, that he pointed out. You know, first, even though they said no at the beginning, the father comes and says, go work in my vineyard. 
and they say no, but yet they repented. That's the first thing. They repented. And then the second is that they ended up doing the will of God. This is what the parable points out. So even though they said no at the beginning, they repented and then they went and did the will of God. So let's have a quick look at repentance first. What is repentance? Well, repentance is you realize you're wrong and you admit it, you confess, you ask God for, to forgive you and you change. You make a U-turn. You're going down the road here, this path that you're headed on, these decisions that you made, and you realize that you've made the wrong decision. You're on the wrong way. You're not going to reach your destination. So you turn around, you make a U-turn, and you go back the other way. Okay? So this is what repentance is. Let's go to a text. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? You see, friends, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Any good impulse that anybody has from within their heart to want to do right, to, to feel that they're wrong and want to do right, that is from God. Repentance is a gift from God. It doesn't originate from within any of our hearts. None of us are good naturally. Okay, it's just some have more of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts and some not as much. But look at this, James chapter 1 and verse 17. The Bible says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You see, this gift of repentance, this gift is from above. It is heaven-born. We don't have any of that within our hearts personally that we can muster up on a personal level. It is God-given. And so this first son, he must have been convicted of what a bad son he was. He must have been convicted of his disobedience when the father came and said, come, please, walk in my vineyard. And he said, no. And it struck his heart later on when he went back home and thought about it. And he had to change. He made a decision to change. But you see, all that work was from God. Okay? The conviction, it came from God. Look at another text. John 16, verse 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You see, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts. He's the one that reproves the world of sin. He's the one that says, hey, Ben, you've done something wrong. He's the one that stirs our conscience and says, hey, you need a change. And that change, it comes from God. Let's read another text. Ezekiel chapter 36, 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. God is the one that will change our stony hearts. He's the one that will give us a heart of flesh, a heart that's soft and susceptible and open and wanting and willing to do His will. We need a heart operation, and God is the only one that can do that. And when He does that for us, look at the results in the next verse, verse 27. And I will put my Spirit within you, 
and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Do you see that, friends? He will cause us to walk in his statutes and do his judgments, not because he's forcing us, but because he's given us a heart change already. You see, friends, this first son was willing to allow God to work on his heart. He was fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit to allow him to work that change in him. So as a result, he received that gift of repentance and the desire to change and the power to change. And so when he said no to his father originally, he then went home and he thought about it and he turned around and he ended up going. That was repentance. And you know, friends, I'm not saying that every harlot and every publican will go to heaven, but there are many out there who've never stepped foot into the church to know the blessings of God's will. But they are willing. They have experienced repentance and a change of heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are willing to do works that, that line up to what a Christian should do. Not that they're keeping the Sabbath, but you know, there are many people out there that don't believe in killing, right? They don't believe that we should lie. They should be honest. They don't believe that adultery is good. They're, they're, they're faithful to their husband or their wife all their life. You see, there are many people out there with good principles who have never ever stepped into church, but yet live like a Christian. And I know what you're thinking. You know, if, if, if there are people like that that can be saved, then what's the blessings of even being Christian at all in the beginning, right? Why bother go to church, right? But look, friends, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. So don't worry about that. We're going to see the blessings of the gospel, the blessings of knowledge, the blessings of following Jesus at the end of this. But we are seeing this contrast of these two sons. So the change in the first son resulted in him doing the will of God. And this is how we know that his repentance was genuine. You see, it's not enough to say you're sorry but you must put into action what you were sorry about to show people and to show God, not that you got to prove your repentance, but it's the result of repentance that you are willing to do then what? Do the will of God. So not enough to be sorry, not enough just to change, but then we got to do. We got to do the will of God. And what was the will of God in the parable, in the story? It was being willing to go to work in the vineyard of the Father. But what is the will of God according to Scripture? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Look, what is God's will? God's will is for us to be sanctified. And what does that mean? What does sanctification mean? It simply means to be set apart. Set apart from profane things set apart for a holy use. And what sets us apart? John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It is the word of God that sets us apart, that sanctifies us, that makes us different from the rest of the world, that makes us different really from the, the, the wicked people. I shouldn't even say the rest of the world because the publicans, the harlots, go into the kingdom of heaven before many Christians, right? So I shouldn't say the world, but in, in reference to the world, I mean those that are sinners, those that are wicked, those that don't love God even a little bit. So look, the first example of sanctification in the Bible is found in the Genesis story, actually. 
And it is God's word that sets it apart because God created with his word. The first day he made light, right? And the, the sun, moon, and all the animals and all of that came later. Every day he created, he, he spoke. But then on the very last day, he also set apart, he sanctified something. It's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. You see, God, he sanctified first time. Not a person, not a thing, not an object, but time. The seventh day, which we also know as the Sabbath, it was set apart, it was sanctified, it was different from the rest of the other days. The other six days you will work, but the seventh day you would rest. And God, He rested. And He showed it through action. Sanctification is not, not just God saying, but He showed it by His action. Not because He was tired, God never slumbers nor sleeps, but He rested as an example for all of us to rest in the future as well. So God wants us to be sanctified today as well. He wants us to be set apart, set apart by the truth that's found in the Bible. For example, when the Bible says, stop lying in the Ten Commandments, we're sanctified by those words because that is the Word of God. In those words, it gives us power to obey, but we experience that sanctification experience when we are set apart, when we don't lie. It sets us apart from the world who may think that it's okay to lie once in a while, or it's okay to lie, just a small lie, a white lie. You know, I'm trying to help my, my friend or that person not to get into trouble. Now, friends, before you think I'm a legalist about having to keep the commandments in order to go to heaven, remember, who is it that gives us the power to stop lying? Remember that repentance, that change in heart, it's all a gift from God. And He is the one that will cause us to walk in His statutes, in His commandments. He's the one that gives us power and strength to obey everything. He's the one that convicts us. He's the one that changes our heart. He's the one that empowers us. The only thing that we have to do is learn to surrender to His will. To be willing to say, yep, yep, we should do that. The Bible said it, it's very clear. We should stop lying. And when we consent to that, when we surrender to it, He's the one that comes in through the power of His Holy Spirit and gives us a change of heart. That's why we now think we should stop lying, right? But not only that, He's the one that gives us the power to apply it. Okay? So, obedient life, a changed life, is evidence that we are being sanctified by the truth and by the Word of God. Now, obviously, we cannot go and just learn the whole Bible in one, one go and just apply it. There, there, there is steps. There, there is step-by-step -step growth that we must experience. So where can we start? Where can we start when we want to learn about the will of God? Is it just, go work in my vineyard? Well, that's the parable. But what does the Bible say? What is the will of God? Let's go to Psalms 40 verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. We can start where? In God's law. His ten commandments. You see, I delight to do thy will. 
Your law is where? It's written in my heart. This is the most basic foundation of where we can begin today. After all, the text says that this is His will, right? But in order to be able to accomplish that, to have the law written in our hearts, what must happen? Let's go to another text. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their hearts will I write them. Notice the emphasis. God says He is the one that will put His law in our hearts, that He would write it in our hearts and in our minds. We just got to be willing to surrender to His words. We got to be willing to obey it and to follow it. If we aren't willing, then we aren't certainly going to surrender to God and allow Him to work that change in our hearts, right? I mean, if we, if we look at the Ten Commandments and, and we say, no, I don't think we should stop lying. I think it's okay to lie once in a while. You know, if we don't agree with the Word of God, if we're not surrendering to what the Bible is saying, and we say, yes, God, you know better than me, even though this is my best friend, even though I'm caught by police and lying will get me out of it, or you know what, you know, you know what I mean, right? If we don't agree with the Word of God, then there's no way God can write His law into our hearts and minds. So that's why surrender is so important. God, I see what you write there. I agree. That's surrender. That's really, really, really important, right? And so when, when it comes to God wanting to write His law in our hearts and minds, we got to agree to it. We got to surrender. And that first son, even though he was rebellious at the beginning, he saw the error of his way and he agreed and said, yes, I should go work in my father's vineyard. And so even today, there are many people out there in the world that are following everything that God wants them to do, even though they aren't Christian, but God is guiding them. And they're, they're stepping out in faith to allow God to work that change in their hearts by living according to their conscience. Go have a look at Romans chapter 2, 13 to 15. This is how God judges those that don't know His law. You see, at the end of the day, friends, God will judge everyone. He, he will judge everybody, the whole world, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. It doesn't matter. God judges everybody, but those who live according to their conscience, that a non-Christian, God judges, and He says, yep, you can enter into heaven, even though you never read my word, even though you don't know who Jesus is, even though you've not stepped ever foot into church before, you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now you're wondering once again, what's the benefit of being Christian? You see, to know God, to know His will, to know His word, there's no advantage like um, how do you say, there's no disadvantage like, oh, I got so much more to do as a Christian, you know, whereas the non-Christian doesn't have to do as much. No, everybody has to live according to their conscience. Do you see that? And the Word of God, the Bible is a pure conscience. It tells us the best way to live this life. Even in the book of Romans, Paul understands, he's like, what's the benefit of being, being Christian um, if God judges everybody by their conscience, right? He's like, no, much, every way, chiefly. Why? Because we have the Word of God. We have a book that instructs us the best way to live, the best way to, to, to you know, how, how do I say this? You see, everybody out there in the world, they know that lying and stealing and killing is bad. We have laws for stealing and killing. Lying, not so much. That's kind of depends what it leads you to, right? But in, in the world in general, we have laws about not killing. And the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill as well. But 
Are we judged by a different standard? Yeah, the Ten Commandments here, but here the laws of the land are our conscience. But either way, we know. Do, do you see that? To exercise the power of our mind and will is the same. The advantage that we have as a Christian is we have a better way to live. Do you see that? We have a health message in the Bible that teaches us you shouldn't eat these things. It's not good for you. It's unhealthy. Yeah, you, you should get enough rest and get enough exercise. Or You know, we have, have different ways in how we, you should treat people and how you should forgive people. These things are good principles on which to live by. And it's not that you don't forgive, you're going to hell. It's not that. Even though the Bible says, you know, God forgives us as much as we forgive others. But we have these principles on how to live a good life here on this earth. And honestly, if we're not able to exercise our, our, our freedom of choice and, and exercise that power of the will and our conscience as a Christian, the same situation would take place out in the world if we didn't know the Bible as well. You see, it's not that we have this this um, so much more to live up to. You know, people go, oh, as a Christian, I know so much about the Bible. I don't want to know. I don't want to know, right? But it's not that. The fundamental basis is not whether you know the Bible or not. It's whether you're allowing the Holy Spirit through the conscience of the non-Christian, through God's Word as a Christian, to empower your life, to live a life for Him or not. So you see, there's no advantage or disadvantage, but there's great blessings that God has given to us as Christians. You see, the son, second son, coming back to the parable, the second son, all he did was pay lip service. He said, but he didn't do it. And this is the classic Pharisee, what we call a hypocrite, a hollow shell. He, he was in church. He was the priest or the elder, you know. Or he, he heard the word of God. And how come the Word of God didn't sanctify him? Why? How is it possible to hear the Word of God? Let's go back to what we read in Psalms chapter 40 and verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. You see, they did not delight to do the will of God. They saw the Word of God as a burden. But you know, if you were a non-Christian, you would see the laws of the land as a burden, right? You'd be trying to take shortcuts everywhere. And people do that in the world all the time. As much as Christians take shortcuts in the Word of God all the time, they didn't delight in righteousness. They didn't want to be a better person. They didn't. The impulse was there, but they didn't want to change. The command from the Father came, go work in my vineyard. And they said, okay. But they just didn't want to do it. They didn't delight. And look at this. Psalms chapter 1, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law doth He meditate day and night. You know, according to Psalms 1-2, how can we delight in the law of God? We have to learn to meditate on it day and night. We've got to spend more time on it. The more time we spend with somebody, the more we make them our friend, the more we are in love with them, the more we will delight to do the things that they delight to do, right? You see, friends, it's not enough just to spend time with someone once a week at church. If we see our friends just once a week for one or two hours a week, I don't think any of us would consider that our friend or really a, a, a friendship. That sounds more like an acquaintance. It would be hard to delight in the things that a friend delights in because we don't know them. 
We're not spending time with them, and we don't seem to have an interest in them at all. Sure, there could be a chance that they have the same hobbies as we do, but with us and Jesus, there wouldn't be a chance at all. Why? Because we are sinners, and Jesus is righteous. We are at odds with God, and we don't, we don't like the things of heaven, but we love the things of earth. We don't like naturally these spiritual things. You see, in James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We're told that if we are friends of the world, we're actually enemies of God. 1 John 2.15 also says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Friends, it's not possible to love the world and to love God at the same time. These two things are opposite to each other. So if we even have just a slight chance to delight in God's will, where do we begin? Where do we begin? We have to go back to that text that we read earlier in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and their minds will I write them. You see, friends, God wants to write His law in two places, in our hearts and in our minds. It's not enough just to have the law in our mind. That's intellectual knowledge. We must have the law written in our hearts as well. That's more of the emotional part, right? Between these two sons, these two groups of people, the first son and the second son, who knew the law? It was the second son, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the elders. But they never did it. Why? Because they did not have the law written in their hearts. They didn't delight it in, in it, pardon me. They weren't spending time in it or enough time in it to be able to come into this loving relationship with Jesus. Oh, they knew the law of God, but it didn't move them. Let's have a look at a story that illustrates this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 or 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. The wise men that came from the east, they were following this star that was guiding them to Jesus, but it led them to Jerusalem first. And so when they came into Jerusalem, they were expecting some joyous moment because they thought, okay, this is where the star led us. This is where we're going to find the Messiah. But when they came asking around for, for this Messiah, for the King of the Jews, it caused quite a stir and alarm because Herod was the king at that time and obviously they weren't looking for him. So Herod quickly inquired of the priests and the elders about this king. And their reply was instant. They even quoted scripture. Look at this. Matthew 2, verses 4 to 6. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written. You see, they're here, they're about to quote the, the Bible. By the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah, 
art not the least among the princes of Judah. For there, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. But that scripture, when they quoted it, it never moved them. It never moved the priests and these scribes. You see, they just quoted it because that was just the saying. They, they, they knew that. That was what they learned up, uh, gr- grown up learning all their lives. You see, they just had a head knowledge of it and not a heart knowledge. There was no true conviction. Because if there was even just a little bit of conviction, then the arrival and questioning of these wise men would have stirred their hearts just to go over to Bethlehem to check to see if these words were true or not. But what had happened? They had been heaped on so much by tradition, the tradition of the churches. They actually weren't having a real and saving relationship with Jesus. They'd caught up with tradition, the doing of these things. And in in the modern day, we can get caught up with the doing of all these things as well. The doing of just simply going to church. And okay, you never preach, you never stand up to preach, but maybe you give them your talents of singing and playing the piano, but we can get caught up with the doing of the church, but never having a real relationship with Jesus. And this was the challenge and the issue and the trouble with the Jewish nation that they got caught up with all the doing but they missed who all this was pointing to you know we can we can miss the point of going to church friends and you know there's the blessedness of fellowship I'm so thankful that we can open for fellowship lunch again but that's not the main reason why we ought to go to church we should be going there to worship our God and our Savior but we can get caught up in the doing of it and miss the whole point of it. And you see, friends, this is what happened to the scribes and the Pharisees. They got caught up in the doing of that, but they didn't get caught up in the doing of spending time in God's Word, reading it every day, giving a fighting chance to God to work in our hearts and lives. Instead of formality of religion, going to church, going for for Friday night, gatherings and midweek prayer meetings you know honestly the midweek prayer meetings many of us miss it it's not something we have to be there you know if you don't go to church people are like hey hey what, what happened to you this past week but you know missing church is more how do you say more serious than missing prayer meeting you know we've gotten to this this, this standard of where if there's a small group in, in prayer meeting, it's okay. If you have 10% of your your, your members or people in church um, in prayer meeting, you're, you're doing good, you know. But we, if you miss church, well, you know, that's where it gets serious. But, you know, we get caught up with the formality of all these things. It's possible to go to all these events and get nothing out of it because our hearts are not there, especially now with prayer meeting online here in Malaysia. You know, we have to fight traffic. Even before there was COVID, there was traffic. So we've had prayer meeting for eight years online and it's possible to just tune in and do something else. Tune in and watch something else. Tune in and really not be there. Tune in and just be on mute the whole time and not say anything. It's possible to go to, through all these, the, these things, these events, these, these motions of life, but really get nothing out of it. Friends, what we're missing is a real and loving relationship with Jesus. And if we don't have that, all these events, even the going to church, can get old really fast. And it will only move us. 
in two ways. It will either bring us closer to Christ through the prayer meeting, through the Friday night care groups, through the Sabbath sermon and the Sabbath school and all these things. You know, you see some people, they get more and more on fire by going to these things. And, And you know, these things will either move us in one of two ways. It'll set our heart more on fire and have a more deep and consistent and loving relationship with Him and give us a more personal walk with Christ or it will push us further away because all these gatherings end up getting boring and mundane and meaningless. And so friends, today we got to give God a real chance. That means what? Committing to spending time daily with Him. Committing that. You know, we know that these things are important and good. But the devil's hot on our tracks. He's trying to destroy our lives and he distracts us to separate us from Christ. Makes us busy. Fills our lives with more exciting things. Gets us busy with work or studies or our relationships. That we don't get to this point where we can have daily time with Jesus. But friends, If I'm describing your life, that you're too busy, then you got to pause. Especially now you come to listen to this on a Friday night or whenever you're listening to it, you got to pause. Stop what you're doing right now just to make time for Jesus. Nothing is more important than our own salvation. It will affect our lives in this world and also in the life to come. But we've got to make sure of our salvation today. We've got to make sure that we allow Jesus to consistently work in and through us. We've got to give Him a chance. You might not agree, but say, okay, God, I hear what you say in the Word of God. I'm going to do this. Please help me. You know? And as you take the step forward, God will open before you the Red Sea and you're going to see miracles. You're going to see blessings. God, I, I don't see how that, if, if, if I don't lie, how am I going to, you know, resolve this situation that's before me? Just trust Him. Surrender. Step forward in faith and say, God, I see what your word says. And it's very clear. I'm going to surrender to allow you to work in my heart and my life and see how God will bless. You will see a living faith. You'll see it come to life because you'll see how God will work for you as you have surrendered your life to Him, to allow His Word to work in and through you. But in order to do that, we have to know His Word, not just get caught up with a few sayings and traditions, but we got to know Him personally for ourselves. And friends, as you have been listening to the Word today, all of us fall under the category of the second son. The first son, The publicans and the harlots, they had no idea. But we are the second son. And may God give us the strength and the power to do His will today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for the blessings of the gospel. I thank you for the blessings of your word. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to see that in your word lies a power that no human being on this earth can find on this earth, except through you. And so, Father, please, may you draw close to us. May you strengthen us. May you comfort us. 
May you give us a new heart today by your spirit and by your word that you would be the one that would give us that strength to walk according to your word as well. Bless us, O Lord, and please be with my brothers and sisters here. Help us to have wisdom, to know how to separate out our life so that we can make time for you and not just for the world all the time. Guide us to that end, Lord, and bless us is my earnest plea and prayer. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen.